If I had any sense after a worship set like that, I would close in prayer and we would be all happy, right? <laughs> Woo! However, I got a word from God, so I want to give it to you this morning. And, uh, but uh, we all have questions for God, don't we? We all have big questions we want answered. Questions like, God, are we really the pinnacle of creation or are there other life forms we know nothing about? Or did you create the world in seven literal days or how long did it take you? How old is the earth anyway? Questions like, how many stars did you place in the sky? What are the parameters of the universe? Questions like, is it true that each person is unique and it was your design and purpose to make every single person just a little bit different. Then the questions are like, well, what's my unique purpose or contribution? What do you see in me? What were you thinking about when you created me? And then it turns to something like we don't understand, like, God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Why do, why do bad things happen to good people anyway? Why did my loved one? die so young, questions like that. And then there, there's questions like, God, I don't get it. Why would you even ever create mosquitoes or poison ivy or jellyfish or cats for that matter? <laughs> right, big questions. Now that I've offended every cat owner, cat lover, I realize I'm gonna forge ahead. So, but every one of us probably has a list of questions, right? Questions that we're looking to get answered shortly after entering the pearly gates. Questions about meaning or purpose or design. Why something happened or didn't happen. Why God allowed some tragedy to occur. Something we can't understand. Why, why there was an intended purpose or reason that something took place in our lives. And at some point during eternity... We want an audience with the Almighty so he can explain what we currently do not understand. We all have questions. Sometimes, though, it's a, a child who can put these deep theological questions into really simple, childlike terms. Questions that have deep theological significance, real strong, but they come from the heart and mind of a child. And so I compiled just a short list of questions. Questions for God written by actual school-age, elementary school-age children that, that have complex concepts in them, but they're written in just simple, childlike terms. Questions that deal with the nature of God, like this one. Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick, right? <laughs> Questions about the nature of evil. Dear God, I have scary dreams at night. Where do they come from? Or should I ask the devil that? <laughs> Questions about morality and appropriate behavior. Dear God, I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? <laughs> Questions about the efficacy of prayer. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> Questions about creation and the origin of things. God, we read that Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school they said you did it. I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> right? Sometimes it's more of a statement than a question like this one. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. <laughs> Questions of the Bible's inerrancy, the integrity of the original manuscripts and translations. Dear God, 
in Bible times, did they really talk that fancy? <laughs> Jennifer is a King James only person, you can tell, <laughs> right? Sometimes the question is more of a personal request. Dear God, would you make me a little brother? I want someone to boss around. Amen. <laughs> the amen at the end never hurts, right? And then finally, questions about life and death, mortality and eternity. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? <laughs> and then lastly, the question I think that's on every heart and mind of every school-aged child this time of year, dear God, there isn't school in heaven, is there? <laughs> you know, we all have questions. But as you heard in the intro, maybe the most important questions are not the ones we have for God, but they're the questions that he has for us. And if, if you don't know it, the Bible is full of questions that God asks humankind, asked his people and his followers. Questions about faith and trust and what you believe. And this week, I want to look at the first question, the first question recorded in Scripture. We'll look at that this morning. And then next week, I want to look at the most important question that Jesus ever asked his disciples. And then on week three, I want to look at the last question that Jesus poses to one of his followers just before going to the cross. These are important questions. They will help us forge our faith and shape what we believe. So we want to dive in right now. So if you would, the first question that God has for humankind is found right here on the second page of my Bible. So you can turn in your Bibles or your devices to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. The first question is on the second page, but we'll give a, I'll give you a little short context of where we are. You're probably pretty familiar. We'll whip through these first couple chapters of Genesis. Reading from Genesis chapter 1, the first verse, verse in the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the rest of this chapter gives some detail to this creation account. It says that God spoke and created the world, and it came into existence as we now know it. It says that God created light and sky, land and seas, plants and trees, stars and planets. He filled the seas with fish and the sky with birds. It says he loaded the land with all kinds of animals, from livestock to creepy crawly things. That's what it says. It says everything he created... He made to reproduce and to flourish. And he says it's good. He says it's all good. Hasn't created humankind yet, but that's where we're going to pick up the reading in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the living creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates men and women in his image. It's his desire and purpose to fill the earth with his image. That's his design for humankind. And these humans are to subdue the earth and rule over all the other living creatures that he has created. Genesis chapter 2 goes on to explain that God then took the man he had created, Adam, and put him in a garden, a garden in a land called Eden, to work it and to take care of it. That was his duty. That was his role. But God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he put the man to sleep. 
made some obvious improvements to his form, and he fashioned women to be a perfect partner for the man. The man was more than thrilled with his new mate and this idyllic setting that God had created for this couple. I mean, they were living the dream. In fact, the end of chapter 2 says it this way. It's the summary statement of all of chapter 2. You can read it in verse 25. It says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Think of it. Perfect environment, perfect setting, perfect spouse, perfect relationship. It cannot get any better than this. But the, the tune quickly changes. The tone of the story takes a dramatic turn in the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 3. I'll continue reading. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat, from fruit, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Whoa! I mean, what just happened? I mean, look at the change. Perfect setting, perfect environment, perfect spouse, perfect couple living the dream. This couple was literally made for each other. And what happens here? Now what? We just read that the man and wife were both naked and they both felt no shame. And here, they're hiding among the trees and sowing fig leaves together to cover themselves. Do they realize what they've done? Do they recognize that the terrible exchange they've just made? Well, that's what God wants to know. In fact, that's what brings us to the first question ever recorded in Scripture. I'll keep reading this account. We'll pick up where we left off. In verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, asking this question, where are you? Where are you? You know, when God asks this question, I'm fairly certain that he's not confused about the couple's location in the garden. Uh, think of it, he's the creator. He's the one who spoke the world into existence, who formed this man and woman, this couple, out of the dust of the earth. He planted the very garden they were hiding in, including the grove of trees they were ducking behind, and the very fig leaves that now covered their half-naked bodies. I think he knew where they were. He'd have no difficulty in locating them, I have a hunch he knew exactly where they were. The question is, did they know where they now were? Did they realize what they had done and what had changed because of their disobedience? Where are you, God asks. 
He asked the question for Adam and Eve's benefit, not his own. He wants this couple to reflect and assess where they now are, having disobeyed him and relied on their own reason and understanding. Where are you? Is what God asked them. He wants them to assess where are you now in relation to how I created you. He wants to do them a before and after comparison, and it's not a pretty picture. So God says, where are you now? Let's compare. God says, I created you sinless, perfect. You were made in my image. I made you holy, happy, selfless, and upright. You were totally content. Every blessing was available to you. Every need met. You wanted for nothing. I guided you and guarded you. I placed you in a perfect location, a, a garden that I actually planted myself for your enjoyment with a role that had purpose and significance. So now I'm asking you, Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you now in relation to how I created you? Well, the answer had to be painfully obvious to this couple that was now covered in fig leaves and hiding amongst the trees, that they become totally self-conscious in front of God and with each other. You know, that's what sin does, you know. That's exactly what sin does even today. It makes you totally self-absorbed, self-conscious, self-focused, self-centered, self-righteous, self-defending, self-justifying. You'll see those latter elements in a couple of minutes when, when confronted with their sin and the man and wife start pointing fingers and blaming each other. It's a self-centered, self-focused, self-consciousness that sin brings. And they recognized it. So God's question has another layer of meaning. Not only where are you in relation to how I created you, but where are you in relation to me, your creator, your heavenly father? Where are we in relationship now? How has it changed? Because God says, I created you in perfect relationship with me. We were in fellowship. In fact, we walked and talked together every day in the garden. You were created with my law, the law of God written on your heart. I placed it there, God said. You were a friend of mine. You were a genuine friend of God. That was the kind of relationship we had, Adam. It was a relationship of perfect trust. You were uninhibited and free. There wasn't a hint of guilt or shame. The truth is, Adam, Eve, you were totally unself-conscious. That's how we were. But what about now? God calls out to the couple, where are you? And Adam, Adam's answer in verse 10 just about says it all. Here's how Adam replies. Adam answered God, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I heard you in the garden, Adam said, and instead of running to you, I ran from you because I was afraid. I'm now afraid. And I realized I was naked, so I'm ashamed, and so I hid. You know why I hid? Because I feel guilty. So where am I in relation to you now, God? Well, the truth of the matter is, I'm now afraid, I'm ashamed, and I'm guilty. 
Again, the result of sin, the result of disobedience, it's always fear and shame and guilt. We become fearful of God. We're afraid of now how he's going to relate to us or respond to us when we've sinned. We become ashamed because of our wrongdoing. Why? Because it exposes us as selfish and sinful. We're exposed, so we're ashamed. And we're guilty. And we usually try to hide. We're guilty because we've blown it yet again because we didn't measure up, and so we hide. Afraid, ashamed, guilty. That's where this man and woman are now in relation to God. But maybe the most surprising thing about this passage is God's response following Adam's confession. God asks, where are you? And the man responds, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Do you know what God's response is to his confession? It's another question. It's another question. Look at verse 11. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? As if to say, you didn't hear that from me. Who told you that? Who are you listening to? Who's your other truth source? God asked that question because he knows that if this couple listens to any voice other than his, whether it's the serpents or their own human reasoning, they're going to believe lies that's going to keep them afraid and ashamed and guilty. And it's the same for you and me. See, because all the other voices, including the ones in our head, the enemy, the world, and our own faulty human reasoning, reasoning will convince us to believe lies that keep us afraid and that keep us ashamed and keep us feeling guilty. I know because I see it like every week. I talk to people like you, like me, and we're so susceptible to believing lies. You know what the most common ones are, the most prevalent ones are, where we buy it? We're so gullible to, to buy into lies. Let me tell you the three I hear most often that you and I so easily embrace that are totally lies. One is this. God is mad at you, so you should be afraid. Second is, you're not good enough. You don't measure up. You can't be accepted by God, so you should be ashamed. And the third is, your sins can't be forgiven. Not your sins, so you are guilty. Those are lies that you and I seem so plausible. We're suckers for buying into them. Why? Because our sin has made us so insecure so self-conscious that we're gullible to believe these lies. And if we listen to any other voice as a truth source other than God's, we set ourselves up for all kinds of misery. And the Bible knows this is true. This is why Scripture warns us that you have an enemy, the devil, and he's a liar. He's known as the father of lies. He's an accuser. And he'll lie all day long as you keep taking it in. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says that when Satan speaks, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. God's word also says to take every thought captive. Why? So you don't fall for one of Satan's schemes. The word also says to stand strong with the belt of truth. Why? So you won't be deceived. And the word also says we destroy the works of the devil with the word of truth. It's truth that destroys lies. It's truth that trumps lies every time. It's the truth. Scripture also warns us to be very careful 
about relying on our own human reasoning. Because of our sinfulness, because we've become so self-conscious, so insecure, so gullible, we can often think the lie is true. It, it seems to be right. And what Scripture says is, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. God's Word also says, we're told, not, we're told to trust God fully, trust God with all our heart, and not rely on our own understanding, because we can be we can be duped, we can be deceived. We've already proven that. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded that God is the source of all truth, His Word is truth, and that those who hold to the teachings of Jesus, they'll know the truth, and the truth will set them free. And that's what we're after. We're after freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt. You know, the truth will set us free from ourselves, too. Not just free from the lies we believe, but truth sets me free from myself. So I don't have to be so self-absorbed and self-focused and self-defending. Truth sets me free from you, from others. So I don't have to be so desperate for the approval of others. So I can be free from their opinions about me. I don't need to be so hurt or offended by what people say or don't say about me. What people do or don't do for me. I'm free of that. See, I'm free to be loved by God because I use him as my truth source. And then what other people think of me don't, doesn't matter so much. So the question is, how do you get this truth into us? Well, you start by asking yourself, who told you that? To assess the source of the truth you're about to draw in and believe. Who told you that? And you're going to determine, did it come from God's word, or is it some other truth source? And you would do wise to be wary of any other truth source other than God, even your own experience and reasoning. And then what you do is you assess it, and you choose to believe what God says about you. You choose to believe what God's word says, even if it, if it doesn't square with your experience, because God's word is truth. We believe the truth in God's word, and we move forward. That's how you combat the lies. So instead of believing the lie that God is mad at you and being all fearful and afraid and insecure all the time, we believe the truth of God's word that says, God so loved the world he sent his son Jesus to save us, not condemn us. We believe the truth that says, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He doesn't want anyone to perish. We believe the truth of scripture that says, in love he chose us to become his dearly loved children. It sure beats being fearful and wondering if God's mad at us. We believe the truth. So instead of being ashamed and believing that you don't measure up or you're not good enough, that God won't accept you, you believe the truth of God's word that says, by grace you're saved. We sang it. It's not your works and performance anyway. It's his grace that saved us. Titus says that Jesus saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his great mercy and love for us. We believe the truth that God valued you and me enough to sacrifice his son on the cross to purchase a redemption. The truth that tells us that Jesus did not come to expose your sin, but to remove your sin and expose your value and worth and purpose. That's the truth about you. I mean, not good enough? Don't measure up? That's a lie. 
You don't believe that for a minute. You believe the truth of what God says about you. God's word tells us that he chose us. He chose us to be his children. He chose us to be his ambassadors to a dying and desperate world. That's the truth about you and me. He chose us. He sees your value and worth even when you don't. Instead of believing the lie that God won't forgive you, that God can't forgive your sin, you believe the truth found in God's word. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. The truth that says if we confess our sin, God's faithful and just to forgive our sin. He cleanses us from all of our sin, all our unrighteousness. The truth that says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Scripture says that when you were dead in your sins, you know what God did? God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all your sins, nailing them to the cross. That's the truth. He won't forgive. Who told you that? Who told you that? You didn't hear it from God or his word. Jesus already paid the price for your forgiveness. He's already purchased your salvation. You just have to believe it. You need to accept it. You need to believe the truth. That's the truth about you. It sure beats feeling guilty. It sure beats hiding behind the trees and covering up. You accept his forgiveness and you walk by faith. That's the truth. That's how we live. Fear and shame and guilt have no place in the life of the Christ follower. They keep you in bondage. They hold you back. And Christ has come to set us free. Right? His truth sets us free. You and I just need to start believing it. We need to start living it. It's all in there. I've read the book. This is all true. You and I just are so gullible for the lies because we're so self-conscious. We're so insecure because of our sin, sins that, that's been paid for. That's the truth. So if God thought you were worth the death of his son on the cross to purchase your redemption for your forgiveness, I guess we should start to believe that we have great worth and value to the Father. If God says we're made worthy through the blood of Jesus, I guess that settles it. Sounds like we're worthy. If God says, I love you forever and my love will never change, will never fail, I guess discussion's over. You are loved. If God says we're accepted and adopted as dearly loved children, I guess that settles it. We should start living like it instead of feeling ashamed. If he says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, to receive mercy and grace in our time of need, he must be for us and not against us. That's the truth. If he says that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, I guess we should believe it and never worry, never worry about God being mad at us. He loves us. If he says that by his power we have everything we need for life and godliness, that we have these great and precious promises so we can escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Sounds like sin no longer has a hold on us. Sounds like he's, we're set free from the power of sin and death. That's the truth. If he says that he's put his spirit in us, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, I guess we have no reason to fear or worry about whether we are able or capable in any given situation. That his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us. Sounds like we have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus said that if we hold to his teaching, we will be his disciples. And his disciples will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That's what you need. You need the truth to set you free. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from fear. 
I think we're free because Jesus has already paid the price. That's good news, people. That's the truth. I need an amen up here. What do you say? All right. You're out there. Good. I was waiting for you to stop my little rant there and get a drink, but I didn't hear anything, so. So here's the deal. God asked you and me two questions. You know what they are? Where are you? Where are you? Because some of us are not in right relationship with our Father. Right? Maybe we've sinned. I can tell you, here's a good test. If you have any guilt or any shame or any fear in your relationship with God, that needs to be restored because you're believing a lie somewhere. And we can take care of business right here today. There'll be some prayer servants right down here after the service. If you've got any fear going on, any shame or any guilt, let us pray with you and take care of business because God wants this relationship restored. He doesn't want you believing a lie any longer. And it's as, it's as easy as that, as a whispered prayer, because he's waiting for you. He's not mad at you. In fact, if you're believing that lie, like God's mad at you, he has a second question for you. Who told you that? You didn't hear it from me, God said. In fact, if you're believing that God's mad at you, or that you don't measure up, that you're, you failed again and he won't accept you, or maybe you're believing the lie that your sins, your sins can't be forgiven, I'm telling you, you're believing a lie. You need to take care of business this morning as well because you're believing a lie. Your self-consciousness, your insecurity has caused you to believe something that's just not true and you need to be set free from your guilt and your shame and your fear and God says, let's take care of business today. That's why you're here today because you need the truth to set you free. Me too, me too. Christ has already paid the price for your freedom. So it's not something you have to earn or do, it's have to accept and receive. You have to believe it. You have to believe what God's word says about you rather than your own experience, your own reasoning, or any other voice you hear out there. So let me pray for you, and then I'm gonna invite you guys to come up to get some prayer this morning. Take care of business. God wants a right relationship with you, the one he designed from the beginning, and he sent his son Jesus to prove it, who's already paid the price. He's already cleared the way. He's already done the work. All you have to do is come and accept what he's done in your behalf.